Welcome to episode 32 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham from the 30th of April until the 2nd of May 2024. Fire Safety Matters is once again serving as the lead media partner for the exhibition. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Morning, Mark. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks, Brian. How are you? I'm very good, thanks, Mark. At the moment, I'm just about to begin work on the August print edition of Fire Safety Matters. We're going to be focusing on evacuation, fire suppression and also fire safety regimes for healthcare premises. Before that, of course, we have the inaugural edition of FSM Live and the Fire and Safety Matters Awards for 2023, both of which are running at the CBS Arena in Coventry this coming Thursday. So really looking forward to both of those, but we're very busy. You've stolen my thunder. Yeah, absolutely. We are a couple of days out as we uh, record this from Fire Safety Matters Live, and it's the first time we've ever held that. You know, we've we've had a phenomenal amount of people. I think we're going to have about 300 people coming to that. It's also Curler Cage with the Institute of Fire Safety Managers Technical Day, which sold out 250 people. And the awards, the first... Um, Time that we can say that we have sold out the Fire and Security Matters Awards on the evening of the 15th of June. Over 600 people coming. So really, really excited about that. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about that on the next edition of the podcast. But before we go into the news, and it'll be Brian to kick it off this time, it's just a reminder to everybody that you can get all the latest news, prosecutions, products and services on our website, which if you don't know the web address, surely you should do by now, but it's fsmatters.com. If you can't remember that, throw into a search engine, Fire Safety Matters, and up we come. You can also click on the webinars tab in the main navigation and see all of our upcoming and past webinars on demand for free, where you get a CBD certificate with your name on it. You can also listen to our digital conference from last year to see all of the events from there. Or you can sign up to our weekly e-newsletters with 50,000 other of your peers that get that once a week. Or you can sign up to get copies of Fire Safety Matters, including the FIA guide, for free or look at them digitally. So well worth going to our website, fsmatters.com. But as I said, we'll go into the news now, Brian. What's the first news story you've got for us? It is a major one, Mark. Hundreds of high-rise buildings are being registered with the new Building Safety Regulator at the Health and Safety Executive as the stricter regime to protect residents begins. Around 750 applications have been opened with the new Building Safety Regulator since the registration process for high-rise buildings opened only last month. By law, Mark, all high-rise residential buildings must be registered with the Building Safety Regulator. Those responsible for the safety of buildings have until the end of September to register or otherwise potentially face prosecution. In a statement, the Building Safety Regulator has said that it's pleased with the early response from the building industry, but is urging all owners and managers to act now. Up to 12,500 buildings in England are covered by the new Building Safety Regulator, itself established in response to the Grenfell Tower tragedy and officially launched earlier this year. The Building Safety Regulator is an independent body engendered by the Building Safety Act 2022. Its launch represents the biggest change in building safety for a generation. Uh, Philip White, the Director of Building Safety at the HSC, has explained, We're pleased with the early response from industry, but I would urge owners and managers to act now and register their buildings if they haven't already done so. This is a legal requirement that will have to be met by the end of September. White continued, Registration is a crucial part of the new regime and our efforts to ensure residents of high-rise buildings feel protected and safe in their homes. High-rise residential buildings that are at least 18 metres in height or have seven or more storeys containing at least two residential units must be registered with the Building Safety Regulator. 
Information on how to register and what details are required can be accessed online. Building owners or managers must provide the number of floors at or above ground level, the structure's height in metres, the number of residential units within, and also the year of construction. Do you have anything to add on this one, Mark? Yeah, I'll give my thoughts in a, in a second on it. But, you know, just, just to finish um, a bit more information on this. So guidance on the key building information will also need to be recorded under the new building safety laws. And that's available online. And you can go to this news story on our website. If you go into our website, fsmatters.com and put into the search engine, uh, building registration process begins, you'll see this story and you can see the link to it on there. So this registration element will then be added to the online registration portal for high-rise buildings later this summer, allowing sufficient time for owners and managers of buildings to submit their key building information by the end of September. The Building Safety Regulator aims to raise building safety and performance standards and to oversee new stringent regime for high-rise residential buildings, as well as overseeing the wider system for regulating safety and performance of all buildings. A further goal, a key goal, is to elevate the competence of the relevant regulators and industry professionals. So that's obviously the role of the building safety regulator. Just coming back to, you know, the story at hand here, though. So, yeah, 750 buildings already registered. By my maths, that's only about a little over 6% of buildings registered in a month, and it is a legal requirement. So quite some way to go, Brian, to getting to that 12,500 figure. Quite some way to go. Early days, a month in, but September will soon be upon us. So, you know, people will need to get cracking with that because otherwise, you know, the BSR will come down on like a um, a ton of bricks. I would say it's a modest start to happen. But like anything, people often do these things late. So it's a step in the right direction that this is all coming into play. But I think there's some way to go, Brian, before they get all of these buildings um, listed. So some way to go is my argument on that. So if we move on to another story from me that I spotted that you wrote, Brian, and the headline was uh, government injects £18.6 million to fund common alarm system installations. So the government has announced a further £18.6 million to fund the installation of a common alarm system to replace waking watch measures in all residential buildings where a waking watch is currently in place in England, regardless of where the cost of the waking watch fall. The fund builds on the £35 million waking watch relief fund, which is focused on high-rise residential buildings, so i.e. those of above 17.7 metres, with a waking watch in place at a cost to the leaseholders due to the unsafe cladding, and the £27 million waking watch replacement fund 2022, which itself expanded eligibility to residential buildings of any height with a waking watch in place due to any fire safety defect. The new £18.6 million fund extends financial support to more buildings and is aligned with guidance published by the National Fire Chiefs Council, NFCC, on buildings that change from stay put to a simultaneous evacuation focused fire safety strategy. So, Brian, I think, you know, you've got a little bit more that you want to add to this as well, don't you? 
I do indeed, Mark. In terms of eligibility, the fund will cover the upfront capital costs of installing an alarm system. The common fire alarm system should generally be designed in accordance with the recommendations outlined in BS 5839 Part 1 for a Category L5 system, which is referenced in the National Fire Chiefs Council's revised guidance on simultaneous evacuation. To be eligible, the building must be located in England, has to be a residential building and must have a waiting watch in place. The fund will cover the cost of alarms where installation work commenced on or after the date of the 25th of May this year. It's going to be administered centrally by the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities for all eligible buildings. For those that apply to the 2021 Waking Watch Relief Fund, further information and guidance is available by accessing the Waking Watch Relief Fund prospectus for 2021. And for those that apply to the Waking Watch Replacement Fund 2022, further information and guidance documents have been provided by the Home Office. So, Brian, um, just before we introduce our first guests on the podcast, it's worth mentioning, as I said at the start, you don't have to wait for this podcast to see all the latest news. You can go to our website, fsmatters.com. You see all the latest news, prosecutions, products and services. If you can't remember the web address, just throw into a search engine, Fire Zeta Matters, and up we pop. So, Brian, who have we got as our first guest on this episode? Our first guest on this edition is Warren Spencer, Managing Director of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors and a regular contributor to the Fire Safety Matters podcast. As a fire safety-focused legal practitioner, Warren has prosecuted more cases under the fire safety order than anyone else. In conversation with Mark, Warren looks back on the joint webinar run by Fire Safety Matters and Blackhurst Bud Solicitors on Friday the 2nd of June. The two-hour-long CPD event focused on the ramifications of the proposed amendment to the fire safety order. Morning, Warren. How are you? Morning, Mark. I'm good. I'm a little bit jaded, but uh, I'm fine. Well, as we said, it is event season. You were at the NAFO conference yesterday doing a session. We obviously going to talk about a webinar we did together last week. <laughs> Just next week, you're coming to FSM Live um, for the IFSM Technical Day to do a talk there and coming to our awards. Meeting. You're a man in demand, Warren. Yeah, and I've got to do some real work at some stage. <laughs> yes, absolutely, you do. Well, I'm going to distract you for a bit longer. So I just want to talk about the two-hour webinar we did last week, which is available to watch on demand on our website, fsmatters.co.uk, or just turn into Google or search engine, Fire Safety Matters, and click on the webinars tab. And, you know, this webinar was really, really engaging, would be an understatement. Um, you know, the, the webinars I said had I think over 150 people come to it didn't it Warren and the, the title of it was the ramifications of the proposed amendment to the fire safety order and we just had a deluge of questions and we did promise that we would do a few more of the questions that we didn't ask via the podcast today so for those of you that are listening in now for the first time I said you know um, we will be writing a transcript of um, the webinar as well in the next issue of fire safety matters but, you know, take a look at what we were trying to talk about, which is the ramifications of the proposed amendment to the fire safety order. Now, Warren, I know that <laughs> the content of this webinar was a little bit different than you'd um, pre-planned. So could you just give us a quick overview of what you discussed um, during the webinar? Yeah, so as you've just said, we anticipated that uh, the, the webinar would be a lot be centred on competence of fire risk assessors and uh, that being brought in and how the government were going to assess how... Um, competence was going to be defined. That that has now been put back, and so will not come in in October, um, on October the first, twenty twenty three. 
Um, but there are obviously other amendments that will come into force. Uh, and it turned out that, that those amendments were sufficient to keep everybody interested. And uh, they involved the likes of uh, the recording fire risk assessments uh, across the board, the recording of uh, policies and procedures and, and uh, plans to execute the significant findings of a uh, fire risk assessment, information to residents in domestic premises, uh, which is now going to be a requirement, passing on information to responsible persons about the extent of your control as a responsible person, passing on information to new responsible persons, um, and uh, cooperation and coordination with responsible persons and with accountable persons, which is obviously a requirement under the Building Safety Act. So, we did have um, questions, a lot that we couldn't go through. I mean, I think there was over 150-odd questions. We went through the vast majority, but we've kept some back here to ask you now. So I want to ask you about four questions now, Warren, that we uh, didn't get a chance to ask. Paul Warren has not had any time to see these questions or prep for them, so we're going to try and get them kind of rapid fire. So I'll start off with the first one. So, Warren, can you clarify, please, if the responsible person is named as a limited company, is that acceptable or are the names of the individual directors also required? As I said during the webinar, the, the responsible person is set out in Article 3 and it's dictated by law. It, it, it's not someone who's appointed. Um, so Article 3 says if it's a workplace, it's going to be the employer. Uh, if the employer controls the workplace, which in 95% of cases it does. And if that employer is a, a limited company, it's the limited company that is the responsible person. What I think the question is asking is if, if, if in a fire risk assessment, um, how do we have some kind of account accountability uh, for implementing anything that comes out of a fire risk assessment? If that is the question, then, yeah, it's always useful to have a name on it, but doesn't make them the responsible person. The responsible person is the company, the limited company, at their registered address appointing somebody to be in charge of the ramifications of the fire risk assessment and the significant findings and putting them together that's another matter altogether but that doesn't make that person the responsible person um, whether or not we identify directors no i'm not saying directors can't be culpable under the fire safety order they certainly can uh, however they are not the responsible person if the employer is a limited company so next question was, flat owners' front doors form part of communal fire protection of multi-storey blocks of flats. They own the door. Are they the responsible person or accountable person? And do they need to cooperate with the building owner, Warren? Well, I'm going to take that back to front. Yes, they need to cooperate with the building owner. Uh, but that's because they are they are they have responsibilities under Articles 5.3 and 5.4. 5.3 says you're liable to the extent of your control. And if your control is over your flat door, which leads onto the communal area, you're a 5.3 duty holder. Um, and that's that's described in Article 5.4 or defined in Article 5.4, which is whether there is a, a lease or a tenancy or a contract. Uh, and you're, you're liable to the extent of your obligations. Most leases will probably won't say that you're liable for your front door uh, as far as fire safety is concerned. However, the reality is that you have control of it. Therefore, you are a 5.3 person. So you're a duty holder. You're not a responsible person. You're not an accountable person. Okay. Next question is quite specific. So um, the business ended in said, in the case of a large organisation where properties are managed by several departments, where the responsibilities sit. So in this person's case, he says, we have property services that maintain, estates that manage properties and housing that manage tenants. So where do the responsibilities sit, Warren? 
those responsibilities should be outlined in your management contracts and in your leases. Um, and if they're not, then they should be. So the answer to the question is when you ask a, a global question like where do these responsibilities sit, it all dis- depends upon the paperwork. So I, I um, do training with airports where you've got a large number of employers in one place. Uh, so airlines and shops, um, all kinds and and border force, etc. You've got all kinds of employers under one roof. There's an example of a type of premises where um, there are a number of responsible persons. Article 22 says they've got a duty to cooperate and coordinate with each other. Who is responsible for what, again, should be outlined in the tenancies, the management contracts and the leases. And if they're not, if there's any dispute, if there's a fire or if there's an audit, uh, then the fire service, certainly the ones that I act for, would be advised to go after all parties for failing to identify their own responsibilities and, and accountability. So same in a shopping centre. Um, and, and with regard to property estates, the same applies. So the owner is probably the responsible person, but the owner can divest their fire management responsibilities to, say, a management company. And depending upon the extent of that um, transfer of duty, um is whether or not that person would be controlled, would be regarded as a responsible person. So if, if the whole of fire safety management was transferred to a management company, that they would effectively become the occupier with full control and the responsible person. However, if, if certain parts are not transferred over to the management company, then the, the, the duties are shared and the responsible person is the responsible person, probably the owner, and the management company is an Article 5.3 person, as I've just explained. Okay, one last question that, that came in. We had plenty more, but this has given everyone a nice flavour of, of what they missed. Um, so questions come in. There's, um, once a fire risk assessment is completed by a company, does this mean the responsible person or staff of the organisation who review these fire risk assessments should also have sufficient training and experience or knowledge? Um, well, first of all, uh, the fire risk assessment will stand and... Its implementation is the responsibility of the responsible person, again, unless it's been contracted out. Article 18 says it's got to be um, competent people who implement the findings of the uh, fire risk assessment. Um, that could be by employing fire alarm engineers, etc. Um, should staff have sufficient training? If they are becoming and having duties under article 23 that's their under their employment then yes they should be trained and one of the reasons that there's always a reticence to go after employees in an organization is that they can always say well i haven't been properly trained so yeah of course article 18 says if you're going to implement any measures of the um fire risk assessment that you do have to be suitably trained Okay, well, as I said, you know, we're going to be doing a comprehensive write-up of this in the next edition of Fire Safety Matters. And you can obviously get the webinars tab on our website by going to the Fire Safety Matters website as well. And, you know, Warren, it was a fantastic session. Huge thanks to you for putting your time and effort in to that and also to the people that uh, paid for tickets to attend. We're truly grateful to all of you who came. Everyone that bought a ticket came, which was fantastic. And we're very, very grateful to them now warren we always end this part of the podcast by saying if people want to find out more information about backhurst bird your company might want to engage in your services or get in contact with you what's the best way to do so so uh, blackhurst bud solicitors has got its own website um i have the, the blog which is firesafetylaw.co.uk um we post a lot of things on linkedin and i'm easily accessible on linkedin and i'm available on twitter as well 
And I can stitch Warren up here. Warren will be attending Fire Safety Matters live uh, and the IFSM's uh, technical day, which is at the same venue, the Coventry Building Society Arena, on the 15th of June, 2023, depending on when you're listening to this. And he will be at the FSM Awards that night. And um, you can definitely come up and chat to him. He'd be more than happy to chat to you about um, potentially uh, working with you should you need his services. And I'm sure he'd probably be partial to a... uh, a, a drink at the bar when you were any any tipple of choice so i know ahead of uh, the night oh i'm just have to see how it goes mark it could be a busy day <laughs> brilliant well warren great to speak to you thanks for your time thank you Our second guest on episode 32 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Matt Wood, the CEO and owner of Millwood Servicing, the fire protection engineering business established three decades ago. Matt began his fire safety journey in the Royal Navy as an initial attack firefighter. On leaving the armed forces, he then joined the family-run Millwood Servicing business in the role of junior engineer and has since progressed through the ranks to now lead the company. During our conversation, Matt reviews the key subject of environmental, social and governance and outlines precisely why he believes it's so important in the fire safety arena. Well, welcome to the Fire Safety Matters podcast, Matt. First of all, could you explain what environmental, social and governance is all about? Is it not simply corporate social responsibility in a different guise? Thanks, Brian. So so I guess maybe if I'm bold enough to say that CSR, corporate social responsibility, is the old brand and the ESG is a better uh, more improved and more current brand of the same kind of thing. So let me just kind of convey that. So CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, it was all about measuring and demonstrating as a business of any size what you would do as a corporate um, in regards to social responsibility. So giving back um, to to your local environment, maybe a, the geographical spread that's that's around where you live and work. Um, and and back in the days, maybe I'm going back sort of 10, 15 years ago, that was what was that was what was expected. And it was enough. Obviously, the planet has changed and the politics have changed. And so that is now not enough. And so ESG, which is environmental, social and governance, covers the three major aspects and the most important aspects of how to protect the people, the planet and to progress further forward. So really, ESG is the current better, more qualified, I I would suggest, uh, version of how to protect our people, planet and and progress further. And it's not just about CSR or um, donating to charity or, or, you know, the the lesser version of that. And leading on from that, Matt, why is ESG so important to you as an employer and a professional in the fire safety arena? So we have um we have an opportunity as a fire safety company to 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 give back better. Uh, we all make profits, uh, whatever our company size uh, or standing is, and however long we've been there. So it, it it's about a decision. It's about a conscious decision about what we as business owners do with our profits. So. Um, as a business uh, who've been going for 30 years, we we probably haven't done as much as we have, you know, since day one when we started in the early 90s. Because really, at that point, it was it was about 
creating a company, building a brand and, and setting ourselves out in the marketplace. But now we're in good times and we have that opportunity and, and also a responsibility to use some of our hard-earned profits to, to make the people, the planet uh, better and to allow a legacy going forward for what we leave behind. So I've got young daughters, um, they're in their teens, and I, I can only imagine that if, if none of us do anything now, then when they're perhaps on a, on a podcast, <laughs> podcast like this, Brian, um, the world might be in a, a tremendous place. But if we make a decision to make a conscious decision to change from an environmental, social and governance point of view, even at our stage in, in, you know, just as, a, as an SME, we could provide a better planet for the people we're leaving behind we can um, use our industry to, because it is a big industry. The fire safety industry is a very big industry. We could use that as a as a benchmark, as a maybe a market leader um, to drive other sectors further forward. And we can leave uh, a, a quite a nice footprint on the planet behind us when we're all dead and you know dead and done, and 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 we've all moved on. And I think that. If we do it at our level, because we're an SME at a certain sort of size and profit and, and headcount, there are bigger companies above us and there are smaller companies below us. But if we all claim together as a sector, we could drive the other sectors of which there are hundreds of sectors um, uh, around the world um, and maybe encourage others to, to sit up and pay attention. So perhaps we could we could be a market leader as a sector um, in, in, in sort of making ESG better. For the, you know, like I say, for the, pl- the people, the planet and for progress. Now, the impression for many is that ESG is all <clears> about <throat> the larger organisations and PLCs and global brands, Matt. Mm. Why should SMEs in the fire sector focus on ESG, do you feel? So, according to my research, um, uh, when I was doing some, some, some business um, analytics around SMEs versus PLCs, my research concluded that SMEs provide more of an income to, to the UK than the PLCs put together. So, there are more small to medium-sized enterprises, family-operated companies, less than 250 headcounts, stuff like that, that collectively bring together more income, more revenue generation than all of the PLCs put together. Uh, and that's just a business, but that's quite an easy concept to get your head around because it's just a volume, scale of volume um, point of view. So I think that if SMEs come together and we we collectively push that conversation, drive the narrative and set the bar, then we will maybe, uh, I'm not going to say embarrass, but maybe encourage the PLCs uh, and the global brands uh, to do it. I am aware that there are some out there that are doing some amazing things, some some really large, big organisations um, in our industry that are doing some amazing things, but it's, it's just not enough. We need all of us to be doing all of it because we all share the planet. Um, and so therefore, as SMEs, if we come together, then um, maybe we can have a bit more of an impact. Now, we're using a few acronyms and abbreviations here, yeah. Matt. What about profit and loss or P&L? Isn't the latter more important than ESG? Yeah, actually. So, uh, yeah, I, I, we, I suppose we're all a bit guilty of acronyms. So profit and loss, P&L, um, yeah, it, it, it's the lifeblood of a business. There's no there's no two ways about it. We, we have to have cash. We have to have cash flow, net profit, gross profit, a profit and loss accounts. But there's all these things to consider as a business. But if we are... Uh, focus just on the commercial side of the business, then there's a thing in, there's a, a, an entity in, in, in psychology that if you focus on one thing and not the other, 
then you're driven down the wrong the wrong lane. You're driven down the wrong focus. So if we just focus on profit and loss and we ignore what's going on around us, then something has to give. So if as a SME, I, I just look at profit and tax and, and gross profit, et cetera, then I, I will make a profit. But if I don't do anything with that profit, to, to better the planet, then it, it, it won't make a difference. And all the money in the world won't make a difference unless we spend it in a really ethical and sustainable and responsible way. So I'm not saying that it's more important. I'd like to go on the record and say it's as important. And actually, when we started as a business in the early 90s, no, there wasn't a, 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 such a thing as ESG. We didn't have the United Nations uh, DSGs either. So we we just we just you know we just had profit and loss, and that was all about making the money and and paying the bills and paying our suppliers and our and our staff. So I would say that it is as important as as profit and loss. It is as important as running a business in profit, which is a legal requirement, but. I think we could, if we think about it carefully, there's even, even if we used 1% of our P&L to, to make a sustainable difference to the planet, and lots of us did that, it would make a collectively uh, a, a bigger, bigger impact. If ESG is indeed of great importance in today's world, why are the bigger organisations not as involved as they could or perhaps should be? I've done some research recently. I've been I've been on this mission for probably about six months now, taking it really sort of super seriously about how how the rest of the the organisations uh, are behaving. And we've we've done some research as a small business, and we've asked our supply chain to to come back with their you know their ESG statements. And and actually, to be fair, some of the bigger organisations it's taken a while, um, but some of the bigger organisations and, and names that we would all know in our industry, manufacturers mainly, have come back with some pretty pretty good stuff. Uh, I, you know, it, it's a lot of reading. Uh, we recently had one back from a very well-known uh, manufacturer, and it was 86 pages on a presentation of what their ESG was all about. So I'm looking forward to reading through all of that. So I think that some of the big organisations are doing a very good job. Uh, I'd be curious to find out if they're all doing the same. We haven't had the response back from all of them yet, and there are obviously lots of manufacturers in our industry. But it'd be interesting to see what they are doing. I think a lot of them are are heading for this um, this carbon zero, uh, net zero, um, or neutral targets, you know, to 2040, 2050. I question whether that's quick enough. Um, obviously, I, I'm not, you know, accountable for their for their internal workings or their profit centres or how they or what they do with their figures. But I wonder whether, as a big organisation with perhaps more to spend, they could perhaps get there quicker. It was interesting. I was up at Procurement Expo in Birmingham yesterday, um, so not in our sector at all. And actually, there's some very big organisations, global brands in in very different sectors, not in the fire or security sector, uh, who are doing some amazing things when it comes to ESG. Uh, so much so that you know, I spent a couple of hours just on the social value uh, webinar uh, and. This is nothing to do with our sector. So maybe as a sector, we could learn from other sector. There's no there's no shame or embarrassment here. It's about coming together as a planet to make the planet better. So perhaps a fire sector could could learn a little bit from um, the PPE sector or, or, or the hospitality sector. I'm not too sure. But I think the bigger organisations have a bigger seat at the table. And I think that they have a, a, a greater opportunity to do more. But I am aware that some of the bigger organisations in our in our sector are doing some tremendous things uh, and hopefully that will ripple uh, and, and encourage others to, to do more. And in terms of those companies in the fire safety sector who don't manufacture anything, how can they assist in progressing the ESG agenda? 
Yeah, so so that's a really good example. Um, a good question. Sorry. So I so we don't provide we don't manufacture anything. Uh, we buy our goods and services in, um, and we we help we sort of sell them out, as it were. So we're a classic example of that. So it could be argued that you know our 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 limit on what we do is 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 very um uh, very small. You know, we 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 don't make anything. Um, we don't manufacture. We don't have molding or factories. But we can be careful with our supply chain. So. As an example, so one of the things we're doing at the moment through our supply chain as an SME who don't make anything is we're just asking the questions of our supply chain. You know, what is your uh, ESG? What does it look like? Uh, is there a way we can help you? We've got some really good ideas back at Millwood. So, you know, would they be of interest? And we're not looking to sell those ideas. We, we, we're literally helping others to, to do better. So just because you don't make something, I, I think it doesn't mean that you, you can't make a difference. In addition to that, by listening to other sectors, like I did yesterday, and just by listening, and, and it was, yesterday for me wasn't about sales driving or anything like that. It was all about research and finding. You can find other ways, other companies who are similar to us, who also don't make anything, who are making significant impacts. So, for example, and I won't name the company, but there was a very good company that uh, was in logistics. Uh, so they 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 don't make a thing. They're just like us. They provide a service, uh, but they're a very they're uh, quite a, a large organisation, and they just looked at how they can make a difference by sort of using pedal power and local distribution rather than national distribution and you know sort of fossil fuels etc. Um, so it's it's about challenging what you can do and then getting the response back and then making a decision whether that's enough or not. And just because you don't make anything doesn't mean that you can't make a difference. And what exactly is the UK and indeed other nations around the world doing about the issues surrounding ESG, Matt? So I spoke to an expert witness, um, a guy called Paul Davidson, who's got a PhD in environmental, social and government. And he's he is a world class expert witness. And when I spoke to him a few months ago uh, in my research, I asked him a very similar question, actually. And he he believes that the UK is doing well. Uh, it's certainly not leading the way. It's not leading the narrative. There are countries that are far behind, but there are also countries far excelling in this. And actually, perhaps we could learn from them. I think we are making a difference. I'm, I'm aware that there's a Procurement Act coming in soon. In the next six weeks, it's, it's got its third reading uh, in Parliament now. Um, and so once that comes out of an act, that will drive ESG to be 30% of the social value return on any um, public tendering. So that's what the UK is doing. So that's quite good. Countries such as Portugal, for example, I am aware that they're driving the narrative much harder because they've established that if they don't, if they don't collectively come together as a country from an ESG positive point of view, they will be in a position in, say, five years time where something like the Algarve will be unvisitable. So what they mean is that if they don't work now on reducing their emissions and they don't work now on, on making the planet better, then it'll be too hot. So therefore, an area like the Algarve, people, you and I, for example, won't be able to go there with our children on holiday because because that just that will just be um, in a no go zone. And he's concerned as an expert witness that actually that might ripple out a little bit more in those areas in the planet where 
you know, the, the weather is weather is extreme. So I guess back in the UK, we don't have that worry. So maybe the gas is a little bit off from our from our efforts. But at least we're doing it at a government point of view with the procurement tax that's coming out. Paul, sorry, believes that, that you know there should be some some further mandatory. Uh, guidance around this uh, because at the moment ESG is very much voluntary it's not compulsory um, it, 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 but maybe you know there could be something a bit more a bit more hard-hitting so for example Brian I'm sure you're aware that there's a there's an ISO um, 45001 which is all around environmental and that's all well and good but if you don't have it, you don't have to have it. You know, it's only sort of relevant to a tendering process or something like that. So perhaps it could be something around that um, around that conversation that the UK could lead on for making it maybe mandatory and maybe perhaps around the, the procurement act that comes out in a couple of months time. And finally, Matt, given the fact <clears> that companies have to meet relevant international standards organisation and other quality standards, as you've mentioned, why isn't there an international standard or even an industry award focused on ESG? Uh, well, that, well, that's interesting. So, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I mentioned one just now um, about environmental. So, yeah, there's that. The, why isn't there? Because it's just not a hot topic. I know that's a very sort of a, a deliberate pun, perhaps, but it's not maybe as important as it should be. I've been in the industry for what, 30 years now, um, and and I've never seen anything in our industry around, you know, the green side of what we do. You know, we're in a red sector, fire and security, and fire is red and security is blue. But wouldn't it be just really, really excitable to have an industry award in our sector around the green stuff, around the environmental stuff, just so that rather than the product of a year or an innovation of a year or a project of a year, which seems to be the same kind of same kind of awards, wouldn't it be quite exciting, quite quite new and keen and and and, and interesting to have maybe an environmental uh, award, whether it's for an SME or a PLC, a particular project um, uh, in our sector, and then maybe as a sector we could lead that narrative to say, well, we do it in our sector. There's loads of other sectors that have uh, have awards, so perhaps other sectors could could learn from us as a fire sector. Maybe we could lead that with um with awards going on to the iso thing i think i'm sure paul davidson said on the record that he believes that there there either will or there should be an iso in esg within the next couple of years because it isn't mandatory at the moment and it is voluntary and actually if you had an iso and it was part of a procurement process or a public and and a private sector purchasing process then we would all set out our scopes our scope one two and three we would all say what we're going to do it would then get audited like all other isos are done a year later and then we could demonstrate what we have and haven't done and what we could or couldn't do and in that way maybe collectively it would all be uh it would all help to make you know a collective impact rather than a choice you know i, I can't afford to do it so therefore i won't as long as the pricing was um, was controlled like uh, you know the other relevant isos then i think that maybe um it would be affordable not only affordable from a, a pnl going back to your earlier question a pnl point of view but also reasonable as well and reasonable in in every concept and uh, concepts of, of of the word so yeah maybe maybe that would be an exciting thing i'd certainly welcome it we're working towards it um here at millwood and um you know if it was to come out in a year or so's time we'd, we'd probably be ready for it i think that uh, i think that unless something like that happens deliberately i think it's still going to be a voluntary thing and of course 
just finishing off on that, if if we could argue that you've got the public sector and the private sector, and that's kind of it in from a from a route to market point of view. The public sector is doing a lot with the procurement act, but that's government driven. There's nothing around the private sector. You don't have to follow anything per se. You know, our standards for, for bidding for work in a private sector perhaps are not as high as those in the public sector. And that's where it could go wrong, because if we put all the effort in the public sector, for every contract and award we get over there, we are missing the the opportunity in the private sector. And, and maybe that's that would unbalance the um, the whole objective of, of trying to make a, a planet better and the people better and the progress for the planet better. Otherwise, it's just a 50-50 result. And I don't think that's going to work for anyone. Returning to the news now, and the Institute on Fire Safety Managers and Certification Body, the Security Systems and Alarms Inspection Board's new joint initiative builds on the growing success of the Fire Emergency and Security Systems Apprenticeship. The initiative recognises the professional technician status gained from the specialist apprenticeship and how it's contributing to filling the skills gap in the fire emergency and security systems sectors. Apprentices will benefit from the start of their learning journey with free student membership of the Institute as they begin their regional FES apprenticeship. On completion, equipped with their ECS stroke first competency card, they'll then be able to apply for the Institute's technician membership grade, that's TIFSM, with the Institute bestowing this grade free for the first year as they start in their chosen career. Significantly, Mark, this joint IFSM SSIB initiative also provides a route for the existing workforce, upskilling from operative to fire technician, supported by their ECS first competency card, to apply for the Institute's technician membership grade by recognising their professional status. Trevor Jenks, the National Training Manager at the SSIB, has explained, the SSAIB is delighted to be involved in this exciting new initiative, which gives professional recognition to the first fire system technician. Starting with IFSM student membership, apprentices will benefit from the Institute's support throughout their journey to first fire technician and starting their professional career as an IFSM technical member. The SSIB continues to take a leading role in setting and raising technical standards as the whole FES sector upskills on its route towards competence and professional recognition. So this is a pretty important story, Mark. What's your take on this one? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, IFSM continue to strive for for pushing a competency agenda. It's it's a very welcome addition this to their existing offering, which includes the tiered fire risk assessors registered which is uh, tfrar as they call it and you can find out all information about that um on the institute of fire safety managers website which is ifsm.org.uk and in fact uh, you know obviously warren and i talked at length in the recent webinar which we touched on in the podcast earlier about that really is ifsm that are taking the lead i remember some years ago, as I said, Brian, when I was um, organising what was then the Fire Sector Summit for the Fire Protection Association, there was talk about a fire safe register, much like the old gas, uh, well, is the current gas safe register, it used to be Corgi, obviously, back in the day, um, on the gas side, and, and no one really took it forward, uh, no one's really taking this forwards, and, but IFSM very much are and you know this really complements other stuff that they're doing i mean a huge credit to ifsm for where they're really pushing this forward you know they are a a volunteer association that's grown from very few members now to over three thousand and you know a bit more to add to this story i'll just say what dave white who's the chair of ifsm said 
And Dave said, the Institute is passionate about encouraging young professionals into the industry and creating a career pathway for those working in the fire industry. Competency is key and the Institute is happy to recognise the ECS stroke FESS card as part of its membership scheme. Members at all grades are kept up to date with the latest industry news and details as legislative updates. I can definitely confirm that, Brian, because all IFSM members get copies of uh, Fire Safety Matters as a membership benefit. So members at all grades are kept up to date with the latest fire industry news and, and as we've said there, and that the benefits of CPD opportunities. And of course, we know how they work with us on that, Brian, because you know, our webinars and just reading Fire Safety Matters, you get CPD that you can uh, self-attribute thanks to our partnership with IFSM. So the IFSM has produced a presentation for registered FESS training providers to use as part of their training delivery. It includes detail on why individuals should become members of the professional body and the benefits to be derived and how they apply. And I think I've obviously touched on that a little bit there because our partnership with IFSM has benefits to all of you listening now that, you know, you do get that CPD aspect as well so yeah you know i think it's uh, it's it's a it's a really nice new initiative and it's great to see that they're working straight with saib on this you know i want to move on to our last news story now which was titled london fire brigade issues a new alert in the wake of e-bike battery explosions so the london fire brigade has shared video footage showing just how dangerous it can be when a faulty e-bike battery catches fire and explodes the footage highlights the risk of lithium batteries and they're used to power e-bikes and e-scooters. You can actually see that video straight embedded in the article we've done online. So you go to our website, fsmatters.com, and just put in the search box there, e-bike battery explosion. Up this will pop. The video is yeah, quite shocking when you see it. But the e-bike involved in this video exploded and burst into flames at a block of flats in Roehampton on the night of the 20th of May. And the CCTV footage from the entrance to um, A.V. Um, Gorshing's home in Tangley Grove shows the bike's battery literally erupting after it goes into a thermal runway. So it's, yeah, it's it's well worth looking at. I mean, I'd say on this, Brian, before I bring you in for your comments on it that we've actually done webinars on lithium-ion batteries and the the need to protect them and, and the risks from lithium-ion battery fires you know safe storage is absolutely key more and more whether it's mobility scooters or these e-scooters or e-bikes these batteries are a serious fire risk and, and shouldn't just be stored anywhere and of course because they do catch fire and explode they're going to cause potentially serious fires and if it's in a residential premises brian it's unbelievably dangerous and we do touch on this on a couple of webinars we've done so i'd encourage everyone to go to fsmatters.com click on the webinars tab in our main navigation and, and and watch back for free that webinar where we touch on some of this but i think you've got a bit more you want to add to this don't you brian i do indeed mark the london fire brigade has produced a list of safety tips for e-bike users so best practice list uh, one is to never block your escape route with anything including e-bikes and e-scooters store them somewhere away from a main ferry route best practice advice is to store these items in a safe location if possible such as a garage or a shed don't attempt to modify or tamper with the battery always follow the manufacturer's instructions uh, converting pedal bikes into e-bikes using DIY kits bought online can be a very dangerous process. They pose a higher risk of fire. Always check that both the battery and charger meet UK safety standards. 
Watch out for any signs that the backfield charger isn't working as it should if they're hot to the touch or have changed shape. Always use the correct charger and buy an official one from a reputable seller. The London Fire Brigade harbours a particular concern where batteries have been purchased from online marketplaces and when they've been sourced on the internet as the goods may not meet the correct safety standards. Let the battery cool before charging. Batteries can become warm during their use. It's advisable to allow them to cool down before attempting to recharge as they could be more susceptible to failure. If charging batteries indoors, always follow the stated advice on safe charging. It's always best practice, Mark, to unplug the charger once the e-bike or e-scooter has finished charging and always follow the manufacturer's instructions when charging. And finally, it's best practice to ensure smoke alarms are fitted in areas where e-bikes or e-scooters are being charged and make sure they're tested on a regular basis. Yeah, this guidance from London Fire Brigade all comes as part of their Charge Safe campaign and you can find out more information about that on the London Fire Brigade website. It's worth noting, Brian, that the brigade had been called to 52 e-bike and 12 e-scooter fires so far in 2023. And, you know, we are halfway through, but that is that is a significant number. You know, you're talking about 67 call-outs already and it just highlights the risks that these pose and you know i hope everyone finds useful the safety tips that you just went through as i said you can find out more information about that on the london fire brigade website but actually as i said at the start of this news story please do go and watch our webinar which is all to do with um lithium iron battery fires and safe storage because i think you'll very much learn from that so as i say you know always you can see all the latest news, prosecutions, products and services on our website. Just go to fsmatters.com or throw into a search engine, Fire Safety Matters, and you can see all of the latest news before this podcast even comes out. So, Brian, who's the next guest we've got on this episode of the podcast? Now, our third guest on this edition is Ian Cumner, the Managing Director of Paytol, the Fire Detection Solutions Specialist. Ian began his career with an apprenticeship at Marconi, before then moving into the world of integrated security with card key systems one of the first large-scale manufacturers of access control solutions here in the UK. Since then, Ian has worked for companies ranging from Caradon Trend and Control Systems International through to Frontline Security. He joined Paytol from Johnson Controls in 2020, having worked on developing framework agreements with Tier 1 construction companies for the specification of fire, security and building management systems. On this occasion, Ian turns his attentions towards the subject of linear heat detection cable. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Ian. Uh, linear heat detection cable isn't a new technology, of course. So why do you think it's still widely used in fire detection regimes today? Yeah, you're quite right there. Um, it's, it's been around for many years, actually. Um, Paytol, I don't know if the listeners are aware, was uh, formed in 1968. And at that time, the main part of their business was um, producing and designing enunciation panels for power stations, etc. Um, and then I think there was a um, a fire in an Italian power station back in the early 70s, which caused a lot of problems um, on the cable trays, etc. Um, so Paytol were invited to develop um, a way of monitoring cableways through power stations, etc. And they worked alongside a company called Sterling Cables to develop the first or one of the first linear heat detection cables or LHDC cables, as they're known now. That was something that took a few years to get right um, and the complexities there are to do with the polymers and the core spring strength etc and also 
what how how that works together and getting it just right to measure at the right temperatures. So that that was developed around about 1976. Um, and since then, you know, Paytol have been developing and improving that product. We now have both analog and digital cables available. The analog is a resettable version, and you can set your temperatures by varying the resistance on the cable. And then the digital cables come in set temperatures with set ambient temperatures as well. Um, so that's been developed over the years. For me, the relevance of the product is still very much there. It's a product that is adaptable and able to be installed in locations where maybe your traditional um, fire detection systems aren't suitable. Maybe there's um, a high degree of dust or dirt in the air. Maybe it's a restrictive space and the cable fits all of those bills. In fact, it's been installed in some quite interesting locations as well over the years. Um, the likes of the Thames barrier, all of the cableways are monitored by linear heat detection cable. Um, and again, on the London Underground, we have quite an extensive installation of our product on all of the escalators, etc. following the uh, tragic Kings Cross fire in 1987. Yeah, so, so we still manufacture it today and it's sold go globally by Paytile. And it's because it's very cost effective and a reliable technology. There's very little need for maintenance on the product. Typically, it's uh, an annual test of the product to just make sure that the cable is retaining its um, integrity and it's still triggering at the right temperature points. Compared with other fire systems, it's a very, very low maintenance option. Just to add one more thing recently as well, with our digital cable, we've recently gone through the EN54 Part 28 approval. So all of our digital linear heat cable is now EN5428 approved. That's both cables and controllers and any combination of the both. Now, you mentioned some of these in a moment ago, but what sort of applications would linear heat detection cable typically be used for? So it's it's um, a great option for providing um, an economical temperature monitoring stroke precise fire detection solution. The whole length of the cable is a detector. So unlike when you've got point detection and they're spaced out five metres apart or 10 metres apart or whatever the requirement may be, the whole length of the cable is a detection point. So originally this was used in power stations, as I mentioned earlier, to protect the cable trays and the racks and um, other parts of the power station, such as conveyors, the bearings on the conveyors, monitoring those for overheat, etc. That's then developed into good example for that would be Hinkley Point B, the nuclear power station that is actually protecting all of the cable, the risers throughout the plant and the local zone monitoring units and zonal metron actuated sprinklers. So if there's an overheat, that will actuate the sprinkler locally to um, suppress the fire in that location. So power generation plants aside, there's pretty much um, a very wide use of the product now, such as conveyors, which I mentioned earlier. Those can be in power stations, they can be in manufacturing plants, they can be in food processing plants. Um, and that's typically used to monitor the friction on the bearings to see if they're overheating, etc. We also then use our IR detection on the conveyors, looking for combustion of material as it passes under that. So in conjunction, we have an extremely good um, solution for conveyors. Another application would be car parks, again, where there's a high degree of wind, there's dust, there's moisture, there could be um, vehicle fumes, etc. 
that can cause false alarms with a traditional system. The cable running over the car bays, etc., provides uninterrupted monitoring for heat and fire. Um, trains and buses, again, with modern engines, because they run at such high temperatures, they pose an increased risk. Um, an LHDC can be installed in the tight confines of the engine compartments. And indeed, with trains, we install them on the bogies, etc., to monitor for overheating, etc., as well. Um, another application would be warehousing. So the cable can be installed within the racking, and that provides traction very close to the point of risk. Um, again, this is unaffected by what could be a dirty environment. And then we have the, the other one, which is quite a, a large application, and, and we do a lot of work in these areas, is with tunnels. So what we can do with that, obviously the tunnel, it runs down the complete length of the tunnel, so it's protected for its entirety. And can you tell us about the linear heat detection cable solution that actually won the 2022 Fire and Security Matters Award for Product Innovation of the Year, Ian? Yes, certainly. That was our FiberSense product, and that filled a gap for us where typically with the um, traditional LHDC products, there's a limit on the length of cable that you can use, and that would be typically round about two kilometres. By using the fibre optic option, we're now able to extend that out and run much further than we would have done in in, uh, in previous um, applications. With our fibre optic system, we can run up to 10 kilometres per channel, and the controllers are available in two, five, 10 kilometre versions and with one, two or four channels. So you can see from that, it's a very flexible product. It won on the innovation point because of the analytics that you can get from the system as well. So it's a more intelligent system with software integration that could be integrated through SCADA with other systems within tunnels or within the industrial application. We were obviously really delighted to have won the award with that, particularly given that it's such stiff competition. And the innovation category, again, really shows that as a business, we're moving forwards and we're forever developing our product range. This year, we've um, entered again um, for the 2023 awards. This year, as for a change, um, we've, we've gone for the Fire Safety Project of the Year category. And with that, we've we put forward a very prestigious project that we've been working on for the last 18 months um, in the food distribution industry, particularly in the frozen and chilled sector. Um, and that's utilising a combination of our LHDC cable and the, the aspirating systems that we also sell. So I think that project is something different and it brings some innovation again to the fire industry. And hopefully, um, you know, we'll be successful again on the night. And we're looking forward to a really great night in Coventry in June. Um, it's always a fantastic evening and I encourage anybody from the fire industry to get involved with it. As a UK-based company and many of the projects involving Patel are of course on home shores, does the business export its products also? And if so, what are your main markets overseas? Yeah, you're quite right. We are a UK-based manufacturer. Um, we produce all of our cable um, controllers, etc., in the UK. But we do have a very, very strong export market. Um, I would say probably around about 65 to 70% of our business is overseas, with a particularly strong presence in India. We have a dedicated sales team in India on the ground, and they are working with um, specifiers in different industries in India to gain business for us. As you'll be aware, India is still a developing economy, a very, very strong economy um, with high degree of industrialization still going on. So for us, it's a key market and it's one that we've been active in 
for around about 30 years. And, you know, we, we find it growing stronger and stronger day by day. And um, one of the guys we have working for us, he worked for the National Thermal Power Corporation, NTPC, for many years. And he now works as a consultant for us for the power generation vertical market in India. Um, not only has he got great contacts there, but he's also extremely knowledgeable and able to advise and help with design for our clients in India. We're also, obviously, aside from LHDC, we do sell other products. Um, I mentioned earlier our IR transit sensors. We have those. We also design and manufacture specific project related um, control panels, which are built in the UK and shipped all over the world as well. One of those applications being for self-loading container ships um, where we build panels for the LHDC cable, monitor the conveyors on those ships. So that's quite an interesting project that we're, we've been involved with for the last three years, and that's continuing to roll out. And we've got another three or four years worth of that project to go. And um, we also provide ASD, aspirating smoke detection, um, with the UK distributor for security on with that product. And we find that really complements our own product range when we're looking at um, some of these larger projects. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the chilled distribution project that we've been involved with has a good degree of ASD in there as well. An interesting application for linear heat detection cable focuses on the protection of large oil and gas storage tanks, Ian. Are there any special requirements that need to be borne in mind when you're devising solutions for this type of application? Yeah, it's uh, it's quite an interesting one and it's a growing application for LHDC. I think we've been selling it into that industry for quite some time now, having understood the workings of the atmospheric storage tanks. And, and I think most people know they're used to store highly flammable products. So finding an effective way to prevent what could be a catastrophic consequence um, of fire is a fundamental requirement for those industries. Um, I think most of us will remember the Buntsfield storage terminal explosions back in, I think it was December 20, 2005. Absolutely had a huge impact on the whole of the UK infrastructure. It's important that these things are now monitored, reacted to and dealt with in a very quick manner, which is where we can help with that. So the LHDC is typically installed around and above the rim seal of those tanks. So if any, any vapour or ignition of should occur, we can monitor that and we'll see the heat change very quickly. That'll then be linked to other systems for suppression. Um, so in, in essence, it's the quickest way of monitoring the tanks and providing a fire solution for those applications. Obviously, our cable is seen as a simple product because it is just a cable. And then we run that back through to the hazardous areas through intrinsically safe barriers, and that ensures safe operation. So our products are ATEX approved on the, the IR, um, ATEX approved for the cable there and the installation. So it means that you've got a very, very secure and safe installation, um, which is approved by the uh, governing bodies. At the end of last year, and as we reported in Fire Safety Matters, in fact, Paytol was acquired by the Swedish technology group Ziptec. What benefits has that deal brought to the business scene, in your view, and in what ways is it influencing your plans for the future? Yes, yeah, so as a bit of history, I think most people know that Paytol has been owned by a, a sole owner, Brian Jenkins, since 1968. Um, Brian's of an age where he's decided, that, I wouldn't say he's decided to retire because he'll never retire, I think, but he's decided to slow down a bit and he decided to sell Paytol. It's taken him two or three years to find the right buyer for the business because Brian was very much of the mind that he doesn't want to sell it to somebody that's going to asset strip the business, take the good bits, as it were, 
and let the rest of it go. Um, the, the great thing about Stiptech is they buy businesses that are well managed and well run and that have a, a, a really good future. And they will help to invest in development for product, development of people and give us a really, really solid platform moving forwards. They've allowed us to continue under our management team as they do with all the businesses that they buy. They don't buy a business to impose their methodology. As they say, they buy a successful business and the reason it's successful is because of the people. So they want that to continue. What they do do is they support us with training. They support us with business thought and they also support us with how we want to develop our business. So at the moment, I'm developing strategy with the guys at Stiptech for how we further develop our international business and also strengthen our UK business. And I'm finding the support that I get from them is absolutely tremendous. And we still have the decision making process held in the UK with our senior leadership team of Paytoll. And final guest on episode 32 is Robert Campbell, the Managing Director of Detector Testers, the business founded in 1965 that concentrates on designing solutions for the testing of fire detection systems. During the course of his career, Robert has held numerous high-profile positions, duly managing businesses around the world, including companies in the UK, France, Germany and Asia. Many of these roles have been within the fire industry. Robert was appointed Managing Director at Detector Testers back in September 2017. In addition to outlining what the business is all about, Robert looks at key trends across the industry and the outcomes in terms of the demand for testing solutions. Many thanks for agreeing to be our guest on the podcast, Robert. Uh, Detector Testers is a well-known brand to many, but for those unfamiliar with the business, what's the company all about and what does it offer to its customers? Yeah, Detector Testers, we do what we say on the tin, I guess, um, but we're pretty good at it. Um, we're the world's leading manufacturer of equipment to test fire detectors, and those detectors can be uh, smoke detectors, they can be heat detectors, they can be carbon monoxide detectors, or combinations of all three. And we've got a history of about 30 years making these products. Uh, and some people still know us under the Test of Eye brands, the Solo brands or the Scorpion brands that we have. And our solutions really enable for what I call compliant functional testing of fire detectors, which, as you know, is required by the codes and standards around the world. Um, we're pretty good at doing that. As I say, we've got a great pedigree. We work with all the major manufacturers in accomplishing this. And, but some people know us as the old no-climb brand, but more recently under detector testers. And the past couple of years have witnessed a busy period for the business. Looking back, what would you say have been some of the main highlights? Yeah, wow, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, I guess in the short term, it's probably been we were a privately owned company up until just under two years ago, and we sold a majority stake to a private equity firm, which is Inflection, who now are on majority ownership, and that's been a powerful part for our future because it's allowed us to reinvest in our business and that's really important over the last 18 months because it's changed the direction of what we're looking to do and for me it's the, it's the key highlight of the shackles are coming off we're trying to do what we want to do and, and position our business in terms of where we're, we're moving forward and some of the examples of that are 
we're driving our increased presence around the world in the key core areas of our core markets and our non-core markets. And, and here's a couple of examples. The USA is a big market for us. Uh, we've almost doubled the sales team over there in, in last year. We put people in India, we put people in France, and we beefed up our team in, in the Middle East. So we're driving that investment. That's a really important part of the last 18 months. And that goes hand in hand with scaling out our business. We've got big ambitions. We're investing in uh, our people. We're upskilling our teams. Uh, and we're driving our business into more of what I call a connected solutions business. A little bit more on that. There's we just launched, as you probably saw at FireX, our first connected product, which we'll talk about a little bit more uh, later on, I'm sure. And that will see test equipment starting to be paired with apps and systems and proof of testing and compliance. That is where the business is going in the direction that I want to take the business over the next five years. And sticking with that theme, what do you believe to have been the foremost challenges that have confronted the company in this time? Well, I, I think we've had a series of black swans come after us um, or come after the whole market. So if I look back, probably Brexit was the big first one that came across all of us. And that was a real nightmare for our business and many other businesses, particularly in the fire sector with the complications around codes and standards and approvals. But just some of the basics like how the hell do we get product through the customs and what additional labeling is required and documentation? And do the carriers actually know what these um, requirements are? We found as we went through this process, and they actually didn't, and they were asking us what we did. And then obviously we got through Brexit and the stuff we're going, and then the whole world was obviously struck down with um, the, the awful COVID situation, which brought its own issues around, especially in our market, of getting access to systems and sites to get testing, getting the worst force back in place to make sure we're looking after our customers properly. And then obviously on the back of that, we had uh, supply chain issues on the, as we came out of COVID, rising costs, inflation. That became quite a challenge to maintain, not only maintain the stock, but source components for our existing and our new developments we were trying to uh, battle on. We, we found our teams having to be involved in managing obsolescence rather than get on with the, the day-to-day business of redeveloping our new products. And then the other big thing in terms of challenges that's happening, uh, starting to see a little bit of easing now, is, is recruitment of people. People became a source um, or became a problem in terms of trying to get the right source of people within engineering teams, within purchasing teams, within finance. I think recruitment still is one of the biggest challenges people face. There seems to be a lack of people, certainly in the UK marketplace, to satisfy the skills, roles that we're looking for. I think they're probably some of the key issues we've faced. It does feel as though the fire sector is experiencing a period of major change in the post-Grimple environment with new legislation now upon us. What are some of the key trends that you're witnessing, Robert? Yeah, I, I think I can sum this up quite quite easily, really. I think what we've seen is through the awful tragic events of Grenfell, the need and want of the business, and this is not just our customers, but the general market, to have compliance, audit trails, and there's a development or an emergence of a number of software solutions that we're seeing all around the audit, the compliance, the IoT, the proof of test. And we all know the fire industry is 
pretty slow. It's a risk averse marketplace, but that's gaining a little bit of speed, as I see. And there's an increasing awareness of the productivity, the efficiency that's required by, in terms of our case, the engineers that are doing the actual work. And like I said earlier, the engineers are in short supply. You cannot get people. There's a number of open roles in the industry. So everybody's looking for efficiency gains, for productivity improvements, and at the same time, looking for that proof of test and compliance. And everybody wants to get more out of the teams. I think on top of that as well, because of the events of Grenfell and other events around the world, we are seeing a renewed focus on the standard, which is great for the industry. And it's not just in the conventional, what I call the core developed fine markets, but we're starting to see it in emerging markets too. And that's a key area for us. And I think it's a key area for the fire market generally, as the as the markets typically around the world start to develop it, they start to see the importance of installing and maintaining fire systems correctly. If you go around the world, especially in places like India, where you know they have fire systems, do they test them? Do they conform? Do they maintain them? Not in a lot of cases, but I think we're starting to see a growth in that industry now. And obviously, the pace of change is growing on, on the emergence of software solutions. So I think they're probably some of the core areas we are seeing changes in the marketplace. And referencing those trends that you mentioned, Robert, what are the outcomes in terms of the demand for testing solutions themselves? Yeah, so again, I think we, we've had a number of products in our portfolio, right from, as most our customers know, we have everything from aerosol testers right up to what we call our electronic testers. And in terms of productivity, we see a definite change in the marketplace away from the very simple handheld aerosols, which can be an issue for uh, testing more sophisticated fire systems. And we see a definite uptake in what we call our electronic range, which is our testifier or our 365 product. So they're smoke generated, they're making synthetic smoke through electronic smoke generation. It's a lot safer, but we definitely see that move and that switching in the marketplace away from aerosols. And the other thing, with the emergence of testing that's becoming more important, there's a lot of multi-sensor detectors out there in the marketplace now. So they're not just checking for smoke, they're checking for heat and they're checking for CO. And that falls perfectly with our testifier product because that can test for heat, it can test for smoke and it tests for CO, various numbers of combinations, but also independently. So we definitely see a trend towards our more multi-sensors. And also that leaves our customers not having to use two or three different types of tools to test the products. They just buy a testifier, they don't need a heat tester, an electronic tester. So there's definitely a move around there. We also see from the drive from the compliance, a need for a proof of testing. We've been hearing this for a number of years now, we heard from service companies that the clients now are asking more and more about proof of test. And obviously, we've not been able to up till now produce a product that actually drives that further. With our new product, which is our uh, compliance report testing product, we can actually provide that to our customers. And I think we've seen that the, the customers have reflected the development of our product range with such solutions and coming out with other areas for us as well in terms of we've developed urban kits. A lot of our customers are moving around on trains and in buses trying to get into city centers so we made a reduced kit that people can throw on the back so that's another area that we're seeing one of the final key areas we're seeing for a change in our product as such is we've actually got a most of our test kits are what we call mobile because you take it and you move on to other places we have a piece of kit called our scorpio was effectively a fixed tester and it will be surprised to know how many detectors are on places uh, that are hard to access 
best good example of that is a lift shaft. Most lift shafts, certainly in the UK and a lot of other countries, have a detector at the top of it. Can you imagine the process of actually taking a lift shaft down to test it? So we've got a fixed head called Scorpion that is placed over the detector and actually tests it in its, in its existing state without having the need to take the, uh, the lift shaft down. And that's just one of a number of examples of where that particular product can be used in big auditoriums where it's difficult to get access, in ceiling voids where you can't get access to. So we're seeing an increase in the need for that particular requirement of product, again, on the back of trends for advancements and test solutions, more efficiencies, and also the need for uh, proof of test as well. brings us to the end of episode 32 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to our guests on this edition, namely Warren Spencer from Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, Matt Wood of Millwood Servicing, Ian Cumner from Paytol, and also Robert Campbell of Detector Testers. You can read more on the issues raised in this edition of the podcast and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website. The web address you need to access is www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content delivered in the podcast and found it informative. Please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming editions. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMpodcast. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG and also access our LinkedIn page at Fire Safety Matters magazine and website. Please do like and share the content of our regular podcasts and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.